You're listening to a podcast from Oasis Church Waterloo. To find out more, visit oasiswaterloo.org. It's uh, super great to be with you this morning. Can we have my computer up here as well? Thank you. Um, for those of you who don't know me, as Anna said, my name is Dan. I've been part of this community for many, many years, which belie my, um, my youthfulness. Um, but this morning, we're continuing our series uh, looking at partnership. What does it mean to be part of this church? Partnership is belonging. It's contributing. It's giving ourselves and being vulnerable. And so that's what we're unpacking over um, the previous two weeks, this week and next week. And this morning, I've been given this statement to look at, which says, I will support the leadership of um, Oasis Church Waterloo, encouraging and challenging them to lead as well as they can, which... Let's be honest, it's pretty vanilla. Like, there's not many people here who are going to disagree with that. But I want to give you an opportunity to disagree with it because, as David said earlier, you're valuable. Your time is precious. So don't sell yourselves out, you know. Hold back. I think before we commit to this, we need to ask a few questions because surely before we can commit to the church, we need to understand the purpose of the church because if we don't understand the purpose of the church, we don't really know what our response should be to it, right? Does that make sense? If church is a Sunday gathering where we rock up and there's some nice music being played and then we come along to sing, well, that doesn't really require much of us. And for people like myself who are um, challenged, we should say, in the way of holding a tune, there is little um, contribution that I can offer or indeed you'd want. Um, so we're going to, this morning we're going to unpack uh, what the purpose of church is, and then figure out what our response to this statement should be. About six years ago, um, my wife Ruth and I um, bought a house. And just to clarify, that's just two people. Ruth is my wife. It's not my wife and Ruth and I. Um, that's Ruth, who is my wife, and I. We bought a house. No, I'd never done this before. It's very exciting. And I remember the day we got the keys, and uh, we're with uh, Ruth's dad, who's known as Big Phil. Um, you're probably imagining a big burly fella, but he's slim, about my height, hence the big, um, shade under six, and uh, and he cries a lot. But anyway, Phil was with us, big Phil. And um, Oh, actually, I, I should tell you this. Next month, Ottilie, our daughter, again, point of clarification, Ruth and I have a daughter, not Phil and I. He's my father-in-law, that'd be weird. But um, next month, Ottilie, our daughter, is being dedicated, and big Phil will be here, so you can come, you can, um, come and say hello. He'll be in the front crying. Um, anyway, uh, we digress. So, Big Phil, Ruth, myself, and my wife, we turn up, we unlock the house, and my initial thoughts were, uh, well, we're in a sacred space, I shouldn't utter those words, but they were along the lines of, whew, it's a bit of a fixer-upper. And uh, Ruth, those of you who know her will know that she, she's one of those people who likes to get things done. Like, if she's not out the house by 8 o'clock on a Saturday morning, she's kind of scratching at the walls. And we'd been, I kid you not, we'd been in the house for maybe three minutes, and she was tearing up the floor. And obviously we didn't have tools, so this is mostly with her teeth. She's just tearing up the floor. And, and that was the inaugural meeting of what, um, what is largely considered in the DIY, DIY world and um, interior design world. We're known as the dream team. That's Big Phil, Ruth and I. Um, over the next couple of weeks, we kind of stripped things out. We put things in. We were very busy. This is a picture of Ruben, who was about six months at the time, testing the structural integrity of some shelves that I bought. I'd not bought. I put in. Yeah. 
Huh? He now walks with a limp, but you know, it's worth it for the worth it for the photo. But whilst Ruth and I were busy putting up shelves, ripping stuff out, Big Phil was in the kitchen repointing things. I don't know what that is. But he was just in there. And every day Ruth and I would be painting, kind of ripping floors up and all sorts of things. Big Phil, he's just in the kitchen repointing. And then um, one day, probably two weeks later, he invites us into the kitchen and he says, I've finished. In fact, our kitchen's not big. He says, I've finished. <laughs> so we look, we go into the kitchen and we're like, it's great in here, kind of Googling, what is repointing? Just like trying to figure out what on earth he's done. I've since learned that repointing is when you get um, a cupboard and it's like this, and then you adjust it so it's like this. And that is very important in kitchens. It allows you to shut all your doors squarely. Um, doesn't usually take two weeks, but Phil is a man of immense, um, intricate kind of uh, uh, focus. He's a man of detail. And he was the right man for the job. We had the right team for the job. And that's basically what I want to talk about this morning. It's about getting the right team for the job. Because he's the kind of person who will go to B&Q and buy a sample of screws and bring them back and compare it to the screws that are in there, go back to the B&Q, get the screw that they want in a sample of colors and bring it back. He's a person of detail, whereas most of us would go, well, it's a door and you just shove it on. It kind of overlaps the other one, but it's quirky and it works. Whereas he's a man of detail. So we, this is what I want to look at. We, we need to build a team. We need to figure out what the job is that we're doing as a church, the purpose of the church, and what team does it require. Um, to do that, I want to just, I'm going to bookend the Bible. We're going to start at the beginning, have a little look at some of that, and then we're going to whiz through right to the end and try to figure out, just by looking at a couple of verses, couple of passages, can we work out what our mission as the church is and what our response should be? And for anyone new to Oasis, um, this I also want to kind of try to introduce you to some of our theology as well, because we take this really seriously. It's, uh, as Carrie was saying, the Bible's a hard collection of books to read. Like, it's at best 2,000 years old, like, it's, it's pr- and it's pretty dry, if we're honest. Um, so we take this really seriously. Um, as, a, as a little tenuous link, um, my, um, my son, uh, Reuben, when he was walking, there he is actually, when he was walking, learning to walk, he, because of the fall, he needed this stick. Um, that's not true actually, but his favorite toy growing up was a stick, and he would learned to walk by pushing this little stick along. Um, and the stick had a, a little man, a little soldier on the end, and um, and then and the soldier had wheels, and then attached to the wheels were little balls. So as he kind of pushed it along, it go, and he used to take it everywhere. And this was his favourite toy. And then um, one day I was in the boys' bedroom, and Ari found it. He said, he said, he said, Daddy, what's this? And I said, Oh, that's um, that was Reuben's favourite toy. And I explained what it was. And at the time, this is an important piece of information. Ari couldn't pronounce his s's. He struggled to say s. So, um, so I told him about this thing, and he, he thought, oh, if, if this was Ruben's favorite toy, you know, it should, should be mine. So he pushed it to the top of the stairs. Ruth was downstairs with my wife, and um, pushed it to the top, top of the stairs. And he says, Mummy? And then Ruth calls up. She says, yep. He says, I've got a new favorite toy. She said, oh, that's good. What is it? 
And he said, it's a man with, the, with balls and a dick. <laughs> but but you, you need to know who's talking and the context, and then it makes perfect sense. And quite often what we do is we just go, this verse is nice. We wrench it out. We go, oh, read that. Well, oh, it's lovely. It makes perfect sense to me. So what we need to do, we need to put things into their context. We need to understand who's talking, who they're talking to. And it, and it brings life and light and it means something and it's, and it's valuable. So the first little passage I want to share with you is this one, which, you know, it's lovely. We all, we're quite familiar with this. This is in Genesis um, chapter 1, 26 to 27. It says, Then God said, Let us make humankind in our image according to our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the wild animals on earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps along the earth. So God created humankind in his image. In the image of God, he created the male and female. He created them. It's a, it's a great passage. It's dense with loads of meaning and challenge. But quite often when we read this, we go, oh, we're made in the image of God. So from this, we can defer that God is an emotional wreck, a bit like us. Um, he probably has limbs. It says he, so God is um, masculine. Um, and, and we assume that, that this is something, it says something about God about God's image. So we can understand a little bit more about God because we're made in God's image. Does that make sense? And we, we take that verse and it's, and it's a, well, it is great comfort. But if we rewind the clock a bit and go back to the, the time that that Hebrew theologian brilliant mind was working, um, this is the image of God. The Pharaoh was the image of God. The, the king of Babylon was the image of God. And only the king was the image of God. And then there was a hierarchy. It went, the, the king was the image bearer of God, therefore do what the king says. And then there was um, probably the, the king's kind of close consort of workers. Then there were men. And then there were free men, as in slaves who had become free. And then there were slaves. And then there were women and children. That was the hierarchy. That was the deal. So only the king was made in the image of God, and you should know your place. So you should be subservient. You are subservient to the king. And then there comes this amazing, brilliant piece of theology where this, the writer of um, Genesis 1, he says, that's not the deal. That's not, that's not the rub. The rub is that everyone is made in the image of God, man and woman. It's, it revolutionizes everything. It's those, you've structured society entirely wrong. You've undervalued life. Everyone is made in the image of God. We're all part of the priesthood. Therefore, you can't devalue life. Like, this is the bedrock. It's incredible. And it moves our understanding of our identity and God. It just nudges it, it, nudges us, nudges it along. We were in this place where we understood that God was... Um, supreme and God was other and then there was the king and then we should all look up to the king but we are of little value but then this brilliant piece of theology comes along and says nah starting from now the new start is everyone is part of that priesthood everyone has incredible value so it's just it nudges it along and then we um, whiz through to this this um this passage that we had read to us this morning. And it said, the scroll of the prophet Isaiah, the NRSV anglicized version, 
was given to him, Jesus. And Jesus unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim um, release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he rolled up the scroll and essentially drops the mic and the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fixed upon him. Because what had he done? It's like, hey, he's just read a nice bit of Isaiah. Why are they, why are their eyes fixed upon him? It's because they all knew where he was reading from. He was reading from, well, it wouldn't have been called Isaiah 61 back in the day, but he was reading from Isaiah 61. And he didn't read it properly because it says to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of the vengeance of our God. This is, this is like the cornerstone of what we believe, the vengeance of God. Like we need the vengeance of God to put right all the stuff that's wrong. And Jesus just, on the spot, just start, he just chops it off and he sits down. And he moves it again, he nudges it along. It's, we have another little revelation of God. It's, you thought it was like this, but I'm telling you, it's not. The day of the vengeance of God isn't coming. This is about the favor of God. This is good news. It's, we need to revise what we think. And there's a technical term for this kind of thing. It's called trajectory hermeneutics. And it basically means that the, the, the Bible, we often read the Bible and we think, we, you know, we open it up and we read a passage and we go, that's the perfect will of God right there. But trajectory hermeneutics kind of says, actually, that's not the way God works. It's not the way relationships work. It's not the way we learn. It's not the way theology works. You learn incrementally, and and we grow incrementally and slowly. And so, so you can. And the Bible is for, like we could talk about this all day. If actually I've got a dinner at Pizza Express, and we can't. But um. But we could if we had time. The Bible is full of these instances where it's the community of God just gaining another little insight, realizing oh, they've undersold God, they've undersold themselves. So, um, so it's a bit, um, trajectory hermeneutics is a little bit like me saying, ah, oh, guiding someone over there with blindfold, a blindfold on, saying, okay, you need to turn right. And they turn right. But if you read those instructions every time, all you'd be doing is turning around in circles, right? So it's so it says, ah, turn right, now go forward. And it's about these incremental changes. So we've we've talked about the Code of Hammurabi before. The Code of Hammurabi was the big law of Babylon that everyone lived under, everyone knew. And then Moses says, hey guys, I've got this, I've heard directly from God. I've got God's law. And people go, oh, right, this is going to be good. And then he just plagiarizes the Code of Hammurabi. He just reads it all off. And then he stops short because the Code of Hammurabi said, a bruise for a bruise, a, I can't a, a what was it, <laughs> an eye for an eye, all that stuff. And then it says, unless you're a free person or a slave, in which case you can basically pay them off. But then Moses says, it's equal. An eye for an eye, a bruise for a bruise. That's it. Whoever you are, we are equal. There is no hierarchy. And then Jesus comes along and says, ah, oh, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye, a bruise for a bruise. But I'm telling you, turn the other cheek. So it's, it's just this slow realization that God is generous. And so that's what, the, that's what um, Trajectory Hermeneutics teaches us. It teaches us to line up these dots in Scripture, and we can see where it points. 
It's not always saying, here's the mark in the sand, be like this, be this way, only plant one type of crop in your field. You know, it, what, what it's doing is saying, be different. Look after the land, look after each other. You are valuable. And it's pointing us, there's a trajectory of scripture which is inclusive and it's loving and it's realizing your value and it's realizing the value of, of others. But here's the challenge, because if you've got your trajectory, what happens if you go too far? You know, we might go too far. We might be a little bit too loving, a little bit too inclusive, a little bit too kind. Does anyone ever think that? Like, we might be wrong, you know what I mean? It's, the stakes are high, if, depending on who you talk to. Um, but this is how we know that we don't go far. We don't go too far. And, I, and the challenge is to go this far. It's because Jesus he gave it all. And on the cross, he said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. When he was being arrested and his friends came to his aid, he rebuked them. He said, don't fight. Don't fight. And he healed the, the Roman's ear, didn't he? The soldier's ear. And he, he never responded violently. But he gave and he gave and he gave of himself. And it seems that everyone he came across, he included, he invited. No one was out. And we can try to find people in Scripture who aren't mentioned, but the, the realization that we have to come to is that everyone who ever came to Jesus, he included, he embraced, and he challenged to be part of this revolutionary story with him. So that's how we know we haven't gone far enough, because we haven't yet given it all. That's what the church looks like. This is what the church looks like. Ooh. It looks like the Spirit of the Lord is upon us because he has anointed us to bring good news to the poor. He has sent us to proclaim release to the captives and recover the sights of the blind, to let the oppressed go free, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That is the mission of the church. Done in a morning. Um, so my question to you is, what is our response to that? What does that require? And we can whiz back to this, this earlier statement. Well, I think unless we read those words of Jesus or Isaiah and this statement and think, actually, I need to give everything, then we haven't quite grasped how big and how exciting this is. This isn't about growing a community um, hub for a few people. This is about changing the narrative across entire communities, across entire towns, across cities, for all people. All people need to be part of this. If we fail to include everyone, then we haven't got it right. We haven't got church. Church is about everyone being restored or redeemed or realizing their full value. That's what the church is. And until each of you have realized your true value, that actually you are made in the image of God, you are part of the priesthood, you are not some kind of second-grade system, but you are the, the God's delight. That's what you've got to realize. And until you help everyone else realize that, then our job is not done. And that is a job for everyone. So I will support the leadership of Oasis Church Waterloo because they cannot do it alone. And encouraging and challenging them to lead as well as they can. Because 
it's only together that we see the full picture, isn't it? I can't see what you see. I can't see my blind spots, but you can see this big scary thing coming up behind me. We need each other because our mission is huge and our, and our task is to share that with the world. So that's why I think this statement is one that we should absolutely hold up and say, yes, I want to support the leadership of Oasis Church Waterloo. I want to be part of this. I want to contribute everything that I can because this isn't just the Sunday club. This is about changing the way I see the world and those around me see it and realize it. So that's my challenge to you this morning. Um, I realize that quite often when people talk, we talk, and then we say, I'm just going to hand over, and we're going to sing a song, and then everything goes straight out of your head. So I'm going to just create a tiny pause, a breath, so that you can kind of review back maybe something that I've said that, you, that might, I hope, been a challenge to you or value to you. Um, so we can just take just a minute to be quiet, and I would like you to, to maybe read this and think, if the church's mission is to proclaim God's favor, what's my role in this community? What's my role in this church? So sit with that question for just a moment, and then I'll pray for us and hand back to Anna or Van. Either something will happen. So let's just take a minute to consider this question or this challenge. God, I thank you for this time that we spend together each week and indeed throughout the week. I thank you that through scripture we see a vision of something that is bigger than us. I thank you that scripture challenges us to see the world and to see ourselves in a different way. And God, I pray that we would always live in tension with scripture, that we would always see the challenge of Christ to be more generous than we are, to be more inclusive than we are, to think better of ourselves than we ever have done before, and of course, to see God in the face of those around us. That's our challenge. Because, as Jesus read, the Spirit of the Lord is upon us. Because he has anointed us to bring good news to the poor, he has sent us to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free and to proclaim the year of your favor. And so when we consider what it looks like to be a partner, to be part of this church together, we realize that it's something that can, that can command the most of us, but it can also give the most, because it's as community, it's as we share life, that we, that we experience it, that we can draw out and we can see you in the face of each other. So, my final prayer and challenge is that these words would not merely float over us, but they would sit with us, that they would challenge us. Because what we are working towards is truly exciting. And I thank you for each person in this room.